Portland is a baseball town. Our secretary didn't have anybody on the phone. (laughs) There was nobody on the phone. They were just egging me along. So they brought a little short, chubby guy in with the name Peters and put him (laughs) in my place and sent me to double A ball. Two fans, one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon, fueled by Guardian Games and Athletic Field Design. This is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Without further ado, your hosts, Ben and Dave. All right, we're back yet again. Yes, we are. Studio with Mr. Rob Nelson. Yep, he he came back surprisingly, but here he is. I'm always surprised and we didn't scare him off, so good times. We put him in the DeLorean and just set him ahead, so it's really like two minutes. 88 miles an hour, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we never left. Exactly. Um, we are talking again about Jim Bowden, and this is our uh, second episode. So if you haven't yet, go back and listen to last week's because we had a lot of great content and just so much information on Jim. And I, I, I need to go out and read some more and read some of his books just to kind of get a better feeling uh, about this man myself. Um, but we did leave off where the 1968 season he finished with the Yankees, then he was sold to the Seattle Pilots, a new expansion team that didn't begin until 1969. But the word has it that he spent the remainder of the 68 season with the AAA Seattle Angels that year. That's great. Now, do you, do you know who the Seattle Angels were an affiliate of at the time? I have no idea. I don't my, my guess is they were an Angels affiliate, but... Uh, Baseball was in transition there, so it may have been more of a co-op team. Mm-hmm. That that there are players who were likely to be pilots the following spring, kind of a hodgepodge. Okay, kind and, of they, like, and that was common back then. Well, yeah, I think teams did that. Okay, uh, in terms of roster space, there there is kind of it wasn't collusion, but you would say, look, we got an overabundance of left-handers here, and if okay. you've got a team that's that's in the pennant chase, let, let's say it's Syracuse or or Butte, Montana. You know, a guy can get some innings in. The local community can get rally behind it. Because let's face it, Jerry Seinfeld is right. The fans are pretty much rooting for laundry. You know, guys wearing your home team uniform. (laughs) So you're rooting for them. So you need somebody to fill a roster. Guys would do that. And uh, And I think also the whole Seattle connection there, they wanted to have as many guys go out there, play at six stadium, which is where the Pilots played their one and only season. And it was the AAA ballpark forever. So I, I think that's probably how it happened. I'm guessing mm-hmm. half the guys on the Seattle Angels were potential pilots for the following spring. Oh, okay. And it was interesting that at this time, uh, they said some off-the-field things started developing towards Jim that maybe weren't so positive for him anyway. And it said that he would continue speaking up for causes that meant a lot to him and in this particular instance uh, one was that he signed a statement urging the u.s to boycott the mexico city games uh, mexico city olympic games if the south africa team was allowed to send its whites only team apartheid yeah Yeah, so you know, you you begin to see in, in historically, anyways, what's what's written at this particular point in time. You begin to see him being more outspoken on causes that meant something 
to him. So it's like him starting to, ex- I, I don't know if it's like he felt more comfortable about expressing himself more at that time, but you, and this I, is I, where the point where you could start. I can't imagine more. Major League Baseball took kindly to that. No, certainly not. Yeah, but that yeah. was Jim being Jim. Even Jackie Robinson yeah. didn't speak out on social issues until he was out of baseball. Mm-hmm. And when you think about Unwritten Mexico, rule. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. You think about Mexico mm-hmm. City. I mean, that was before Kurt Flood. It was before ball players had any voice. Yeah. And the fact that Jim was doing that. The fact that I pitched in South Africa for parts of seven or eight seasons made for interesting conversation between Jim and me, you know, many, many years later. But the mm-hmm. fact that he was uh, at the, the forefront of that. I mean, I don't know if you know about the South African Tennis Open, but it was Arthur Ashe who spoke to Jimmy Connors, to John McEnroe, and a number of players and said, you know, we can't do this. This is this is just not right. And Jim was before that. So he was, you know, typically ahead of his time. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. yeah. And then he said he went on in, so this was 1969-ish. And then in 1970, he went on to write his famous book, Ball Four, My Life and Hard Times Throwing a Knuckleball in the Big Leagues, which was published, as we talked about, called some major uproar within the baseball community. And he said they talked about drug use and sexual hijinks and other things. They want nothing to tarnish their name. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. And he said the book was was written from all the notes he had taken during his time in baseball, I think 68, 69, and maybe before that. And he said that he'd, he'd even write it on like old note cards, cereal boxes, just like whatever. And Hotel napkins. It, it literally goes into length on several of the interviews that I watch of him as they, he talks about how he formulated this. Hmm. And he said he'd be sitting there like meetings taking notes and they're like, what are you doing? Take notes, put that stuff away. And he'd be like taking notes, like in, in, you know, wherever he was at, whatever it was affiliated with the team, he'd be taking notes is what he said. What's fascinating about that now is all of Jim's notes are in the library of Congress. Really? They, they really? Re- they recently got with the last six months or so, they, uh, uh Paula and Jim, struck uh, an agreement with the Library of Congress. So all of those napkins and and, and mm. menus and and odd bits of paper, they're all part of the national record. It, mm-hmm. It's quite amazing that, that is. he kept it. I mean, he archived everything. It's really very cool that he did that. And it was wonderful for Jim's wife, Paula, to uh, to make that happen, to make that a reality. Mm. Yeah, the next thing I want to talk to you, and I want, to, I want you to focus in on this a little bit, Rob, because obviously clearly, you know, knowing Jim, but... I have a feeling he was a little bit hard on himself, and let me explain why I mean by that. Because he said about the about the book, because he said he felt the re- bad reception was due to him being a marginal player, and he said if he'd been the Mickey Mantle of the world, or the Whitey Ford, or or some of the other guys on the team, that it w- probably wouldn't have met that reception uh, that he got. So he he felt like he he was marginalizing himself because of his play, how he played. You know, that's a really good point when you think about it. it it's rare that a guy who isn't a st- on the field has a life after baseball even or even during baseball you don't see uh, a third string catcher on Johnny Carson or, or right. you're on Conan or something you know right. these days kind of thing uh, the only two guys I can think of who've done that uh, Bob Euchre parlayed a marginal big league career into being a media personality mm-hmm. uh, and, and Joe Garagiola before him was a marginal catcher maybe not so marginal but certainly not a not a Hall of Famer not an all-star and so he had a film uh, or TV career kind of thing but their stuff was more on the humorous angle and the goofy parts of baseball whereas Jim's commentary was was very insightful and 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 
and telling that, okay, these guys are not saints out there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who, who complained about Jim's book, you know, Dick Williams, the famous manager for, for Oakland, said that, I haven't read it and I don't like it. You know, and there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people who said that over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he said that the, he believed the, there was one story that really kind of got it to where people would not liking it was the story told about Mickey Mantle hitting a home run with a hangover. And uh, so he, he said that Mickey Mantle hits the home run, comes in, and he's like, so how'd you do it, Mick? He's like, I just hit the one in the center. Yeah, I hit the middle ball. That's what <laughs> Not it's over. He was still drunk. I hit the middle. Yeah. And I remember Jim told me that he what Mickey drunk. actually said was that people don't realize how hard that just was. <laughs> it was pretty funny. But Mickey, he was like in the training table, and they called him out. It was kind of like Kirk Gibson hitting that home run right. in the World Series off of Eckersley that Mickey Mantle was able to do that. A remarkable thing about Jim and Mickey Mantle one of my favorite stories that tells you a lot about Jim is that when, when Mickey's son Billy passed away in in the nineties, uh, Jim wrote a letter to Mickey Mantle mm-hmm. and and said that you know we 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 were Yankees, the Yankee Brotherhood of the Yankees, but more importantly, we're fathers of sons, and and that this is a terrible loss, and I really feel for you, and I want you to know that I got your back because you know you're my brother, and and. Jim told me later on he was nervous about doing that because he didn't know if he would be shunned. Hmm. And and it's just a great story. Mick, Jim goes into his office. His secretary, Gloria Folari, says, uh, Jim says, are there any messages? And she says, I think you should go in your office and turn the on button on. This is pretty cool. And it was Mickey. And Mickey Mantle said, Jim, it's Mick. Just want to thank you for you know your, your sentiments. And, and, and I want you to know that no hard feelings. And in terms of the old-timers games at Yankee Stadium, I have never put the kibosh on you showing mm-hmm. there. I've never I've never been against you. And uh, I just really appreciate who you are. And, and thanks for writing to me. And it made Jim feel so warm, so accepted that somebody of that stature. Mm-hmm. One of the cool things about Mickey Mantle doing that, it's, it's he didn't have to do that. You know, it was between two guys. He didn't have to do that. But right. it, it wasn't going to be on public record. I mean, well, yeah. You know what? Now it is on public record. Now it is. It's though. in the Library of Congress. It's part of yeah, all those notes that Jim has and Paula have given to the Library of Congress, and the, it, it's it's Mickey Mantle in its most favorable light. And of all the stories that Jim told in his lifetime about Mickey Mantle, I think the one he enjoys telling the most is the phone call that that Mickey made. Mm-hmm. To let Jim know that hey you're still you're still part of the team. Yeah, and he said that it was like ten days after he had sent that letter. He said I I didn't expect it at all. He's like just like Rob said he came into work and then you know secretary's like play this. He listened to it and uh, yeah and and he kept it. He's like I right, I have it till you know the, very the, cool have to this day. So that's really neat and interesting that the Library of Congress will have that. Gloria told me that story and and the, his secretary and and Jim sat down and and she said Rob I can't say for sure but I, but I think Jim was crying. He was so happy mm-hmm. to be kind of embraced by a friend. You know it it makes me feel good to know that he did that. Jim, yeah. was a, Jim was a classy guy. Jim always used to laugh that his, his, on his passport, his first name should have become controversial. Because whenever <laughs> there was an article about Jim Bouton, they would say, controversial Jim Bouton. It was like C.B. Bouton. <laughs> you know? and, and, moniker. And, 
One of the reasons I think he liked coming to the Mavericks was because he wasn't controversial. He was just another one of the guys, which is what I think Jim would have preferred in the big leagues, but it was different times. Yeah. yeah. So after his time with the uh, Seattle Pilots, he got traded to Houston. Uh, he played there for a little while, and then he was let go by the Astros organization, and he started his new career as being a sportscaster in New York City. And I believe this is like about the time that you wrote him, was right around then, in that he found his energy and time, he spent his energy and time on girls' high school basketball and weightlifting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jim was doing local news, which meant, you know, five minutes or seven minutes of, of reading scores. And Jim kind of changed the format. He made it entertaining. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit of an aside, but ABC TV came up with the concept of happy news. And one, when Rune Arledge created Monday Night Football, he brought in Howard Cosell and Frank Gifford and Don, uh, uh, Don Meredith and said they had them watch clippings of Boughton and that news crew of mm. ABC TV. We want banter. We want give and take. We want this to be entertaining for people. And Jim was a key part of that whole thing. Uh, it, it was it was quite a pioneer in terms of what we accept as the norm now, mm-hmm. the banter that goes on with three in the booth kind of thing. Uh, Jim played a big part in that, you know, and, 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 and it's funny, he never took credit for it. I mean, we talked about it over beers mm-hmm. and stuff, but, you know, it... It's like Jim just did stuff because it wouldn't it be cool if we did this, you know? Mm-hmm. He didn't do it because he thought that he he'd get 10,000 tweets it wasn't or whatever. Some deep it is. deep agenda to it. No, it was he just, just like, said hey, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be mm-hmm. cool? Wouldn't it be fun? Yeah. I mean, that's it's cool. one of the reasons we became partners in the bubblegum business. Huh. When I shared with him this idea, he said, "I really like that idea." It was like an inning later, his eyes got so big like baseball. There was said, no bottom line in he his said, mind. He said, "Rob, I I could sell I could sell this idea. We could yeah. we could make some money on this." And who knew? That's funny. So Jim would go on in 1971 to write another book titled, I'm glad you didn't uh, take it personally, Re- uh, Reaction to Balfour in Early Days as a Sportscaster in Retirement. Um, you, did you talk about what, why he came up with that idea to write that second book? Well, part of it was because he, he and uh, Lenny Schechter, his editor, they had so much extra material. And then when Jim got this offer uh, to... Uh, do local sports news, he saw that the structure of the um, the TV business was in many ways similar to Major League Baseball, the hierarchy and things you couldn't do and things you could do. And Jim thought it was fascinating that that's the way the world of business worked. So in a lot of, I'm glad you didn't take it personally, is about how TV was a parallel universe to, to baseball, that there are people who had rules that really didn't make sense. Mm. And and Jim kind of led the league in breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. So the second book is in many ways more playful than Ball 4 is. It's it's a heck of a lot of fun to read. It doesn't it really take is. itself so seriously. No, no, really, really. which okay. is, was Jim's mantra. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I learned afterwards is that Jim went on to actually either do a movie role or play in a TV little small TV series. So apparently in 1973, he landed a role in the movie, The Long Goodbye, and he played bad guy Terry Lennox. And then in 1976, CBS aired five episodes of the television version of Ball Four, and Jim had a role in both on and off the screen. It turned into show. a miniseries. That's what it. That's well, what it was. was a t- it was going to be a sitcom, and you know, Jim. Yeah, this is t- crazy. Jim told me this is crazy within the last couple of years that. 
He said he really didn't understand that Balfour wasn't a comedy. It was really social commentary. Sure. Mm-hmm. And and it was it was more highbrow than the, than the pilot. The first five episodes made it out to be. It was more it was more kind of like Seinfeld. It was just slices of life of how absurd of what was going on. They and they went for the like the big laugh, and they didn't have to do that. It was a much more subtle thing. His film, The Long Goodbye, was a Robert Altman film. Mm. It was a really big deal. And he gets shot at the end, you know, spoiler alert. But he's really good at it. Elliot Gould is in it. It was kind of a big deal when Jim got to do the movie. Yeah. But, you know, it it was kind of Hollywood good looking. He's a heartthrob and a funny guy and a smart guy. Mm -hmm. Who knows where he thought it was going to go. He couldn't believe he got the opportunity to do that. But the TV thing, he was writing it. He was starring in it. He was kind of producing it. It just... <laughs> Excuse me. It just beat him up that that it was so much work to to do that. But as he said to me once, he said, "You know, Cheers isn't about a bar. You know, it's about a bunch of people and the and the interaction of the people. And, and the mm-hmm. bar is just the device to bring those people together for thirty minutes every week. Yeah. And 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 he and he said the clubhouse scenes and everything involved for. He said he thought that that's what they could have done. The personalities mm-hmm. would have evolved. Mm-hmm. But you know, TV is a tough business. Five shows, and they said, yeah, numbers aren't good. Yeah, not a lot of patience there. Yeah, yeah. He continued to play some baseball with various uh, New Jersey adult leagues throughout the time. In 1975, says he signed with the Portland Mavericks for the first time, and he pitched in five games. He went four and one with a 2.2 ERA. And then in 1976, he played Double A ball with the White Sox affiliate in Knoxville. He went 0 and six. <laughs> and then hang it on, just hang it on. After that, he went to the Mexican League. He finished two and five. But then he went back to the Mavericks, and he went five and one at the age of 38. Uh, so he talks about on <laughs> one of the funny things is on August 3rd, 1977, he went on Johnny Carson's show and he said that uh, they had beer night at the stadium. That's correct. And then he said, in a funny way, he's like, they encouraged me to pitch slower so they could sell more beer. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he's like, no, that's the I'm, line. Yeah. He's like, normally I'm quicker, but he's like, and he was laughing about these. He's like, they encouraged me to pitch slower so he could drink more beer. And Johnny Carson's like, well, these 12 ounce beverages. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's pretty funny. But, but, that was but probably you know, a Bing Russell idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bing was great. Jim threw on a Friday night. We did a couple of things that Bing just loved. One of the, you know, I, I played for the Mass for three seasons and I won one one game in three years and they they treated me after that one win like it was Madison Baumgartner winning game seven of the World Series Kurt Russell took us all out to the bullpen tavern we we, we partied till about four in the morning it was wonderful but I wasn't much of a ball player and uh, I had proposed to Bing he, he said you got a future in baseball but not on the mound and I had one idea I said listen instead of having Jim throw side sessions in between starts why don't we throw him for two innings let the fans know Jim Bouton is starting on Friday night, uh, but get there early because he's only going for six outs. And we did it a couple of times, and Jim loved it because he got to focus on his knuckleball. Right. He didn't do the side session. It's kind of like the opener thing that people are doing right. now. The two-inning in, in opener, the, In sure. the big leagues. And and it was a win-win. Bing, Bing thought it was great. We had a bigger crowd. Jim had fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we've talked about it before, the Mavericks led the league in fun. Yeah, and it's a side note. I remember Larry Colton talking about because he because at the time, and I think you know, as a single A affiliate, you could only have on your roster one 
um, player who had played a professional, like a higher professional level at the time. So Larry had said, well, I got cut and then they brought, that's when they brought Jim on board. That's correct. And, and that's where you see the pictures like in battered bastards of baseball and all around of, um, Bing and, and Jim sitting at the bar and handing the shirt. There's a great scene in Battered Bastards of Larry Colton pitching with a leather kind of motorcycle cap and a full beard. <laughs> he awesome. calls it his uh, his Charles Manson period. And uh, Larry told me that he got into writing. I mean, his Pulitzer Prize nominated. He's done some great stuff, but he got into writing. It was either the Oregonian or the Willamette Week, and I apologize to both publications. I don't remember which. They wanted him to do an article about the Mavericks and what it was like with Jim Bouton there and so forth. And the reason Larry had time to do that, it was no longer on the team. So his first writing gig was to talk about the Portland Mavericks and what that meant to him and so forth. And... And from there, he went into, you know, I mean, he's a full-time writer. He's one of the founders of Wordstock. I mean, Larry's done amazing stuff. He pitched with the Phillies, got into a, a... it's a, it's a sad story. We'll talk about it some other time. But Larry Colton was the real deal. I mean, he was a major league pitcher, and Bing used him as a DH. When Larry Colton Did he got, really? When Larry, yeah, Colton got, when Larry Colton got released, he was hitting about 400. Mm-hmm. He was an amazing athlete. He could swing it. Went yeah. to Cal Berkeley. I mean, a brilliant guy, great athlete, and really just a Hall of Fame human being, just a really mm-hmm. kind and humble guy. So what was that first experience for you? You know, Larry Lee's, and then they, they bring Jim on board with the Mavericks. What was that first experience of like him walking into the, into the, in the clubhouse and meeting all the guys? Well, when I saw him, uh, I, I, I reintroduced myself. I said, Jim, I don't know if you remember me, but I wrote to you, and two years ago, you threw knuckleballs with me in, in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, I, I'd written to him. He was a TV guy in New York City, and he wrote me back sent me a postcard. He said, call this number. I've got 20 minutes. And he spent almost an hour with me throwing knuckleballs in New Jersey, some kid who was trying to be a knuckleball pitcher and emulate what he was trying to do. Hmm. And when I told Jim who I was, he said, I remember you. He said, you're the Cornell kid. And, uh, and I said, yeah, we threw knuckleballs together. And he said, well, not exactly. I threw knuckleballs and you tried to throw knuckleballs. Oh. <laughs> and we and we laughed. I mean, that was Jim Bouton 101. I said, yeah, that's true. That's why I'm here, you know. But from there, uh, you know, it was two years in between times. But the fact that Jim remembered the little guy really impressed me. That really impressed me. He didn't come in there with any kind of, uh, I'm here, you know, everybody, you know, part the seas because I'm, I'm the man. He was never, he never had that, he never had that uh, mm-hmm. mentality. And that was the beauty of the Mavericks because we had a lot of guys who came across country, guys who slept in the bullpen during the trials because they couldn't afford a hotel room. They wanted a chance to play ball. Huh? And it, Jim was saying that uh, when he got to Portland, the, the manager met him. <laughs> and he said there was only one rule. He's like, the, the manager said one rule, and the one rule is only no smoking dope in front of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Very specific. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the Mavs were way ahead of their time. You know, there, when the, the film was premiered here at the, the Oregon uh, Art Museum, <laughs> probably the first time a lot of us had been in an art museum, <laughs> but uh, in 2014, uh, Bruce Wilbur from L.A., one of the Mavs, said that when you think about the Keep Portland Weird movement, 
It's like the Mavs were right at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and the film, the film Battered Bastards really shows that that we were an alternative kind of baseball experience. And it was family friendly, but it was a little bit wacky. And 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 we really Bing used to say that the three letters to a successful minor league team are not W I N. He said the three letters are F-U-N. Win a handful of games so they'll keep coming back, but make sure they have a good time when they show up. And he was the king of that. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was, And Jim and Bing Russell and Frank Peters, uh, and he, at the, the last season with Steve Collette, who was the skipper, everybody understood their role. It's like Kurt Russell says in the film that, that Bing was the band leader and we were just kind of the trombone section and we all knew that we played a part on in this big band, band of ballplayers. And uh, uh, I'm so lucky that I was a part of it. Yeah, He said, Jim went on to say that the red of the uniform, because it was like red, mostly red, and then there's some black, there's some white in there. But he said that the red looked like devils. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, and apparently the uniform was a mistake. Bing had designed it, and the red was supposed to be the trim, and they came out the way they were. And they were like triple thick, because when a guy slid, Bing didn't want to have to pay for the you know the mending kind of thing. We were the only team. You know, today, the teams have like 12 different uniforms, a Sunday special. The Mavs had one uniform, home, on the road, anything. When they said, do you have your uniform, it was easy because there was only one nice. only one uniform mm-hmm. and I really like that if I ever get to own a minor league team I'm going I'm going to go with the one uni policy and another thing no names on the back of the uniforms oh, okay. the team you know the name on the uniform is the Mavs and, and that's who we were it's funny even the cap had an M on it mm-hmm. it didn't have a P on it we represented like the Maverick in everybody it was the right. Maverick Nation. Was that by design? Interesting. They decided to go you know, Bing did a lot of things just intuitively. When Gordon Erfer, the, the uh, sign painter for the ballpark, was given the assignment to paint the Maverick bus. It was a school bus, and he painted it red with white and black trim. And, and I saw him completing the deal, and he was wiping his hands so proud of it. And I looked at it, and I go into Bing's office, and I said, Bing, have you seen the bus? He said, yeah, that Gordon, he's a genius. It's amazing. I said, I think you better come out here. Gordon <laughs> had, he, he put the apostrophe in the wrong place. It was supposed to be, it was supposed, <laughs> to, it was right supposed to be the Portland Mavericks Baseball Club, and it was Portland's Maverick Baseball Club. Oh. And Bing looked at it, <laughs> Freudian he said, slip. you know, Rob, I like it better that way. And we kept, <laughs> so we have, if you look in the film, there are banners that say Port- Portland's, Portland's Maverick, Maverick Baseball, Baseball Club. Club. He, Bing had a way of doing that when things happened organically when joe garza got on top of the dugout to sweep when we were about to beat a team it wasn't sweep night it was some guy who said hey this would be cool it was more like a jazz band meets a baseball team Hmm. it's like we just were kind of doing it viscerally yeah and bing was the guy smart enough to realize that it's awesome i've I've got magic on a diamond here and i want to jump in on that because when uh jim was on letterman in 1982 he talked about probably one of the funniest things that he said that he can remember about the Mavericks and he said he talked about PL Mavericks so the dog he said the black Labrador dog that they had and he said that they would teach PL to fetch baseballs and so what he said was is that every time that a team had a rally they throw the ball out PL and Maverick would go out and chase it and, and eventually stop the rally so he said on this one instance the, te- the the opposing team was ahead by a bit and they wanted to stop the rally so they threw out the ball and everybody's chasing PL Maverick around the field he said probably about 20 minutes or so and then he said he, the, the dog ran 
by home plate it did his business on home plate just right it was on probably it. the only dog ever to get a standing ovation at a baseball game i was there <laughs> you remember that that's awesome <laughs> it's just beyond belief the fun thing about the mavs is that we weren't 21 22 year old guys we were you know five and in some cases 15 years older than that you were comfortable in your own skin well essence. we but we all knew that this was this was like summer camp and you got to play baseball. We we enjoyed the moment. And, and that was very much Jim Bouton embracing the moment. There's a great line in, in Battered Bastards when Kurt Russell says to him, what are you doing here? Uh, they're on the sideline before a game. And Jim said, look at this crowd. You know, the smells, the sights. He said, would you rather be anywhere else? And, and Kurt thought about that. He said, no, no, you're absolutely right. Bing said Jim Bouton just, uh, Kurt said, Jim Bouton just got it. He understood that the Mavericks were about baseball in many ways the way it should mm. be played for the joy the joy of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, I want, before we get into Big League Chew and, and kind of go in that direction, I just want to finish up Jim's career real quick. Um, and then I'd like to go, you know, talk about the Big League Chew adventure that you had with him. Um, so he, what I read and what he was saying is that you know, he redefined his, his knuckleball because that's where, with the Mavericks, he was bringing it back. And that's what allowed him to focus in on what got him to where he was at. And then he, apparently he met Ted Turner, the new owner of the Atlanta Braves team at the time. And that Turner had promised him a shot, another shot. He played, ended up going to play for the Savannah, in Savannah for the Braves. He went 11-9. Um, in 1979, he was called once again back to the major league roster. He finished 1-3 with a 4.91 ERA. And after one of his starts against the Reds, manager Sparky Anderson said, we didn't even hit the ball hard enough off him, and we got two runs we shouldn't have gotten. Hmm. And he said he uh, then he would go on to retire from baseball once again. When Jim got called up, well, two things. When Jim was p- pitching in Savannah, I went down to visit him. And, and we talked about a couple of things. One was we were going to work more on the shredded gum idea when the season was over. Uh, but the skipper on that team was the late, great Bobby Dews, D-E-W-S. And Bobby Dews in 1972 signed me to a 21-day contract for the Sarasota Cardinals in pre, what were they called, extended spring training. Huh. And, I went there just on a whim, and he gave me a chance, 21 days. Well, actually 23, May 1 to May 23. Not like I remember it much. But the fact that he gave me that shot, I was just always grateful to Mr. Dews that he would do that. And he was exactly Jim Bounton's age. So he was, at the time, like a 32, 33-year-old manager at the beginning of minor leagues, and he stayed in baseball forever. Uh and it turns out he's Jim's manager in uh, in Savannah. And when I saw him, it was just so great that that, that whole baseball loop came around. So I, I felt good that Jim was with a skipper who really loved the game, who really got the game. And then when he gets called up in September, Jim calls Steve Katz, who was a Portland Maverick, uh, one at bat. Uh, I always like to say that he was one hit away from hitting 500 for the Mavericks. <laughs> And he's a chiropractor now in San Francisco, sports medicine, New York City guy. Jim called Steve Katz, and and he called me. And he said, go to the airport. I got tickets for you guys. And he flew us to Atlanta to see him play for the Dodgers. Steve was into nutrition and stretching Jim out. And and Jim really credited Dr. Katz with, 
with making the comeback. He really got Jim mentally and physically better prepared for what was to come. And and he and I were just friends. You know, we haven't even started the bubblegum business. Mm-hmm. But I was his pitching coach. You know, I'd said to him jokingly, I said, you know, you're the first guy I've ever coached who made it to the big leagues. And we both laughed at that because, you know, he, he had that long career. But he flew us to Atlanta, and, and we celebrated. He pitched against the Dodgers, three up, three down for the first three innings. They had a perfect game. And at the time, I was working with the Jugs Pitching Machine Company. I brought a Jugs radar gun. It was a crazy weekend. Phil Necro was with the Braves. Charlie Huff was with the Dodgers. And Jim was with the Braves. So there were three knuckleballers in one weekend. That's crazy. And I was clocking everybody. And all those guys were throwing in the 60s. And I'm thinking, Jim could do this. And then the wheels kind of fell off in the fourth inning. And and so he didn't last that long. And it was like one of the first times I came to the realization that maybe they should throw Jim three innings every third day. <laughs> you know? yep. Because you go through the lineup for once, everybody. go through the lineup once, nobody could get a hold of him. And I remember we were talking about that in 1978. And Jim said, no, they'd never do that. They just wouldn't plan a whole pitching rotation around one guy. And of course, now, the Yankees have, I forget who the starter is, he hasn't faced more than nine guys at a time, starting for the Yankees. Hmm. He's, a so it's inning, like, he's a three-inning guy. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. so the, to have a three-inning, a guy who throwing two or three innings to start is not unusual in today's game. Back then, it would have been revolutionary. Had they done that, Jim might still be pitching there. Yeah, who knows? It was yeah. pretty crazy. But the thing that, that about Jim was that he was willing to go to double-A ball, and they loved him in Savannah. Those guys playing double-A ball, they didn't think it was a sideshow. They said, this guy's the real deal. He's mm. first guy out there, shag and fly balls. He was just so well-received there. Mm. And, uh, and then to get the call up in September, you know, there was nobody that I knew of on the pitching staff down there. He went from double A to the big leagues, and uh, he pitched some great games there. It was mm-hmm. just, I forget which manager, one ball player said it was like facing Bozo the Clown. And then Jim <laughs> Jim threw, Jim, and, and I forget it was an article or something, but then like five days later, he threw like eight innings of shutout ball, and he said, and eight days later, Bozo the Clown beat the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, it was, it was fabulous awesome. writing. But uh, I think the thing I really want to communicate is how how much Jim Bouton loved baseball and what a good teammate he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he always talked about how he should have changed his first name to the word controversial because for many, many years, whenever there was an article about Jim Bouton, they would say controversial Jim Bouton did this or did that. But in terms of my experience, knowing him before we were teammates, before we became business partners, he was just the kindest and most visionary guy. Uh, you know, he's gone this summer, and I, I think about him every day. There'd be no Big League Chew story without Jim Bouton. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about Big League Chew because you, you both were the with the Portland Mavericks, and that's where you know you got the idea, and it was as we all aware, you know, chewing tobacco, and you're just like, what can we do differently to get people to stop chewing tobacco and you is like shredded bubble gum and then you, you you came you got the from a Sears catalog or whatever you get the well, well no it, it was that's it, interesting they there were three other people besides me in terms of the big league shoe story bat boy Todd field used to chop up licorice and put it in a red man pouch to look oh. like a, to, to look like a yeah, big that's deal. Funny, yeah. And that was like 75 or 76. I said, Todd, what are you doing? He said, Rob, relax. It's it's licorice. It was a year or so later. I said, you know, 
suppose I made it bubblegum. Licorice doesn't work for me because you chew it and you're done. He said, yeah, gum would work. That would be cool. And then Jim and I were in the right field bullpen looking at Mav pitchers being goofy, chewing red men and just making fools and slobs of themselves. And I said, Jim asked me, he said, did you ever chew? I said, probably for 30 seconds. I can remember the guy who gave it to me, a teammate in Johannesburg, uh, Danny Smith from Central Connecticut State. I mean, I knew all the details because it was such a terrible experience. And Jim said, yeah, me too. I probably chewed it for a minute, maybe two. He said, it never made sense to me. And it was about an inning later, I said, been working on an idea. What do you think of shredded bubblegum in a pouch? And Jim's eyes, really, they got as big as baseballs. He said, Rob, I could sell that idea. And that was the bingo experience because I'm the middle school teacher, uh, the, the ball player who never was, one good year of college pitching, and Jim was the businessman. He was the hardcore guy. So I was the dreamer and he was the can-do guy. Jim used to say that I had the inspiration and he was the perspiration because he pounded the pavement. He went to six or eight companies mm-hmm. and, and he would explain what Big Lee Chew was and they said, well, we don't make anything like that. And Jim would say, exactly, that's why I'm here. We were lucky to find, Jim was lucky to find, a small division of Wrigley called uh, Amaral Confections in Naperville outside of Chicago. And uh, they said, this is fun. And they had just developed a technology, had a shred gum. They didn't, oh, know, okay. what, they didn't know what to do with it. There you go. They didn't know if it was going to be Popeye spinach or, or bubblegum pasta. They didn't know. And they said, this is perfect. And as luck would have it, because I didn't make the Mavs in the beginning, I created a thing called the Little Maverick Baseball School. Yep. One of the kids in the camp, Scotty Chernoff, was the son of Dan Chernoff, fellow Cornell guy, patent and trademark guy. He did all my legal work. And so we had a product, and Jim did it. And it's so funny being a middle school teacher and Jim being a ball player and a broadcaster and a writer, we really fish out of water. But the Wrigley people, first contract was a three-year deal. They thought it would be, be a fun novelty. Yeah. And, uh, and then after the first year, when we did really well with it, they redid the deal. They said, let's go long-term on this thing. Mm-hmm. But it was largely because Jim Bouton... Like his baseball career, he wouldn't give up on the bubblegum thing. He just... Bulldog. Persistent, yeah. He yeah. just... You know, the one thing he'd said to me was, he said, Rob, I'm not having any luck. I'm explaining to him, I need samples. I said, how am I going to get samples? As luck would have it, January of 1979, People Magazine has an article about a company in Arlington, Texas. A make-your-own-bubblegum kit. I, I ordered the kit. I got the box full of the stuff, and it was I made sheets of the stuff at Candy Fields Kitchen, which is crazy. Todd Fields' mom's name is Candy, right? What are the odds that Big Lee Chew was born on Babe Ruth's birthday 40 years ago, 1979, in Mrs. Fields' kitchen? Candy's kitchen. And I saw them recently, and and same, they still live in the same house. It's like, there there should be a plaque here. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. amazing. And... I made root beer flavor and I made uh, maple flavor. I went to the stadium Fred Meyer and, and and got some extract and just looked like a sheet of brownies. I had a pizza knife, the round thing, and and chopped it up. And I had a local ad agency create a pouch. I designed a thing, a little cartoon character of Jim Bouton that said, best I ever tried, Big Lee Chew Shredded Bubblegum. It was, it was, you know, it, I mean, really. I, I majored in philosophy. I went to grad school to teach middle school. I had no idea what I was doing. So whenever I get to talk to school kids or or, or, or ball clubs, mm-hmm. I just talk about, you know, just because you don't really know what you're doing doesn't mean you should stop. And mm. 
Because as long as you've got good heart and good intentions, you're going to meet guys like Bing Russell. I mean, Bing started the baseball day camp when I told him about it. He said, I love this idea. He called the Park Bureau. He called the Oregonian. Within three weeks, we had a camp. Awesome. And the same thing with Jim Bounton. You know, a chance conversation in a bullpen. I was at the Timbers game yesterday. I'm looking at the right field line. There's an Alaska Airlines ad down what used to be the right field bullpen. I said, damn, I need to get a plaque. Yeah. Next year's mm-hmm. 40 years worth of Big League Chew history. I know it's a soccer uh, pitch now, and, and I'm happy for the city. It was just pandemonium yesterday, but I missed the ball club. I mean, I was down the right field, the left field line, rather. I said, I feel like I'm at Fenway mm. Park, you know, but... But yeah, that's where it all happened, and it was a lot of your life is being the right time, the right place. But yeah, you, you kind of have to have an instinct. And when you, I didn't uh, make the Mavericks, and that dogged determination. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and the, let's let's face it, I wasn't working in a factory. It was really fun. And when I didn't make the yeah. team in '75, I said to Bing, "I'll throw batting practice. I'll I'll park cars. I'll sell tickets on the phone." And truth be told, I did all three, mm-hmm. and I didn't get signed with the Mavs until mid-August of that first mm-hmm. year. But when I told him about the baseball day camp, Bing said, I love this idea. When you think about that, he let me use the Portland Maverick brand. He let me use the ball players. He yeah. found Grand Park That's for awesome. me. This guy bent over backwards. And after the third season, he said, go back to Portland State. Take some business classes. You've got a future in baseball, but it's not on the mound. Yeah. I mean, I loved how direct he was. Mm-hmm. And that's why Bing Russell and Jim Bounton were so... Uh, were so meant for each other. They understood. They dreamed big. They dreamed big, but they took care of details. Love those guys. Miss them like crazy. Yeah, and I got a bag league bag of big league chew or a pouch in front of me, <laughs> and I picked some up the other day. It's uh, grape, one of my one of my favorite ground ball flavors. grape, my favorite. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just reading in the back. You just said it about 40 years, and you said 800 million patches, pouches uh, later, Big League Chew is the only bubblegum ever honored by being exhibited at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Now, I'm going to open up this because I, oh. I love Big League Chew, and I got the man here, so I'm just going to I'm gonna open it up. It's funny, Ooh. when you open a pouch of Big League Chew, I think it was Dan Rovell on, on ESPN, uh, business oh. and so he asked me he said when you open the first pouch when they shipped it to you and you open your first your first pouch of Big League Chew what did it smell like and I said it smelled like fun <laughs> and he said you know that's so funny because I asked Bouton the same thing and when Jim opened it he said it smelled like money <laughs> and that was the <laughs> difference funny. in the partnership that he was the brass tacks down to business guy uh, excuse me for slobbering on the air, but I'm, I'm going to take some right now. Yeah, so I had to grab some the other day. I can't believe I dropped some. Oh, I you're share, good. I share this with my son, and he just absolutely like loves middle, middle school and high school, I was a ball player growing up down in Aurora. This was, we was just piles of stuff. I mean, this was it. I mean, how lucky, right? Yeah, this was it. Back in 80s, early 90s, you know, like mid to late 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this stuff's great. <laughs> you can hear me all <laughs> chopping on them. Yeah. <laughs> this makes for great, great, great podcast right here. <laughs> but uh, the thing about this is, is that I remember when it, the old iconic like front pictures that you have with the guy with the baseball hat. 
Big old chin. Big wadding. Big wadding. <laughs> Grubby looking guys. Mm-hmm. Bill Mayer was the artist. Still working down in Atlanta. Just looked like man. a Yankee guy from Major League. He, yeah, he that's was, what it looked he, like. When, when Jim first the saw Yankee the guys, guy he Major said, League. these guys look like Portland Mavericks. But but uh-huh. uh, Bill was a Mad Magazine cartoonist, and that really shows in those early guys. They gotcha. really looked deranged. Now, what was it? What did it mean to be to Jim for this to go into the Baseball Hall of Fame? For Jim and for me, it was an acknowledgement that, you know, I always said I, I always wanted to be in the Hall of Fame, and Jim as well. For, but for our gum to be there, it's like, you know, you take what you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I go to Cooperstown every Memorial Day weekend now, and there's a baseball clinic, and there were 10 stations all around the field. And last year, the kids were learning how to catch ground balls from Ozzie Smith. Hmm. And uh, the wizard. And then you go to the uh, the right field bullpen, and it's bubbles with Coach Rob. And nice. That's awesome. <laughs> the fact that I'm, I'm hanging out with major leaguers, some of them are Hall of Famers, and the Hall of Fame Cooperstown t- treats me like a rock star. It, it's it's such an honor to be part of it. And, and the fact that... The fact that people acknowledge it makes me happy. I met Tommy Lasorda at a, an ABCA conference, the American Baseball Coaches mm-hmm. Association in San Antonio. And this is going back, geez, 25 years ago. And I was introduced as the, the Big League Chew guy. And Lasorda said, you know, what you did is really good. He said, guys chewing the other stuff doesn't make sense. And, and he said, congratulations. I mean, I was amazed. I'm talking about Tom Lasorda. And he and he's congratulating me for coming up with something that's that awesome. that added something to the game. It makes yeah, me happy. That's cool. Well, <clears throat> I just want to like finish a little bit about Jim. And uh, one of the interesting things that I I didn't know until I started doing some of the research is that he he was a big proponent of the preservation of historic baseball parks. Mm-hmm. I think there was one in in Pennsylvania near a town that he was living in and him and another gentleman that you know they were keeping an eye on the local uh, political politicians and saying that they had these closed door meetings and he was like back to like ball four days taking notes on like no question actually it was pittsfield massachusetts one of the earliest places of where baseball was Mm -hmm. ever played and uh, it was Wakona Park. It's still out there. And Jim went after the the town fathers who wanted to replace that or tear it down and said, you know, history matters. This stuff is really a big deal. So it still exists in large part because of Jim Bound. Yeah. And uh, two last things. Uh, Jim believed pitchers in his day were treated like farm animals and pitchers today <laughs> Are treated like thoroughbred horses. <laughs> yeah, back to the the Strasburg thing yeah. and the comparison. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. Um, and the last thing that you you know he he ended up passing July tenth of two thousand nineteen at the age of eighty. But I would say the the thing that actually got me about Jim was outside of Big League Chew, outside of of baseball, and, and as an author. The fact that he was a proponent of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and he really, like, that that to me thinks like that to me was like, hey, I'm willing to step out and and, and be a proponent of this and and make sure that everybody, you know, hey, 
we have a freedom of speech. We have a freedom of the press because he didn't want just like one company owning it and having the ability to uh, talk about what's going on. Because I think they brought up the Wrigley, you know, hey, the you know paper owned Wrigley and Wrigley owned the team and having just one way communication. He believed openness. So I thought that it was interesting and it went along very well with the Portland Mavericks. Well, Jim was far more than a ball player. I mean, he was a delegate for George McGovern's campaign in 1972 mm-hmm. going up against Richard Nixon. And so Jim was always tilting at windmills. And the fact that, that he and I became friends, I mean, a New York Yankee world series hero, kind of a big deal in and around New York. Uh, it's just always been, it was always a joy to be around him because he, he just, he looked out for the people all around him. He, you know, a, a lot of people thought that Jim really was craving attention. In my experience, it was the exact opposite. The exact opposite. That he, he always tipped the clubbies well. He was kind to the bat boys. It's one of those things you learn about character. My dad and my mom, you know, dad New York City cop and mom was a mom. It's like the, the whole thing about character is in terms of being kind to people who can't help you in any way. And that was the thing about Jim. He wasn't into reciprocity. He, yes. he didn't become a maverick because he thought this was a stepping stone for his career. He thought it would be useful. He'd do the best he could for the team. Mm-hmm. There's not a guy in the Portland Mavericks doesn't think that Jim Bouton is a first ballot Hall of Fame teammate. He was just an awesome guy. Mm. I was lucky to know him. Sounds selfless. He really selfless was. Selfless to him. Really was. Yeah. But it's been amazing to, to be able to to talk to you Rob about about Jim it's been great to be able to look into into him as an individual and I, I look forward to continue reading some more about him through his 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 literature and stuff that he he wrote and uh, I just I wish that I get the opportunity to actually know him, like get to talk to him and and have this interview with Jim in person but yeah I'm sorry you didn't get to do that either you know Jim the film, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, that's a line from an essay Jim had written about oh, the okay. Mavericks. And Jim never said, you know, hey, that was my line. He, it never came up. It never came not, up. Not a, was, self, not a self-promoter. He was just so happy that the team was going to be acknowledged, as are we all. I mean, I was lucky enough to play on four different continents. And when the film came out, to get emails from London and from Cape Town and from Sydney saying, hey, Nelly, we saw the film and... That sounds like you had so much fun. A lot of my teammates didn't really know the background of the Portland Mavericks, and then they got to see it, and they said, that explains a lot of your behavior, which really made me happy. Really did. That's cool. But Jim Jim was the kind of guy who just, he he wasn't out there because I'm Jim Bouton. He was out there because he loved the game. I mean, his his line, the last line of ball four, when it says you go through your, your whole career gripping a baseball, and at the end of the day, it turns out it was the other way around. I mean, that quote cool That quote is on, it's like part of a banner in Cooperstown. I mean, it's the coolest thing. Wow. Jim's not in Cooperstown, but the one quote, there's a Jackie Robinson quote and a Jim Bouton quote, and when I was in the coop for the first time in a very long time and I saw that, it gave me goosebumps. It gives me goosebumps now mm-hmm. to see that Jim in large type, that the Hall of Fame understood that Jim Bouton was talking about the love of the game. Very It was cool. the other way around. It's pretty cool. I don't know any other way to like finish this episode that, off. That's about as good as it gets. That's about as good as it gets. Thank you guys for this. No, it really means you. a lot to me. Thank thanks you for ta- a lot. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Appreciate sure. it. So that'll be it for this particular episode of our podcast. And uh, thank you, Rob, for joining us. And uh, it was a pleasure. 
My pleasure. I'll come back anytime you need me. Excellent. Excellent. We'll take you up on that. Yep. All right. Well, Dave, thank you once again. Thanks, Ben. All right. And uh, that'll do it for this episode. As always, I am your host, Ben. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob Nelson. And you have yourself a great day. And remember, there's 108 pouches and a box of Big League Chew. That means there's 108 stitches in a baseball. That's correct. There it is. All right. You take care. Have a great day. Peace out.